0: This episode of Tester's Island Discs is sponsored by TestRail, a modern web-based test management tool which allows you to manage all of your testing efforts in a centralized location. To learn more about TestRail and to find out how you can sign up for a free trial, visit www.testrail.com or see the details in the show description. Welcome to Tester's Island Discs, your most musical guide to the world of software testing. My name's Neil Studd and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Testers Island Discs, where today my guest is Paul Maxwell-Walters. Paul is my second guest from Down Under. Like Rich Rogers before him, he's a British expat who's finding his new home in sunnier climes, and he's firmly found his new home now as co-chair of the Sydney Testers Meetup Group and also blogging for himself at Testing Rants. He's also going to be talking at the upcoming Test Bash Australia on October the 19th with his talk Avoid Sleepwalking to Failure on abstractions and keeping it real in software teams. A very, very warm welcome to the podcast
1: for you, Paul. Why, thank you. I'm glad to be invited. I'm honoured to be invited. I'm a big fan of the show, by the way.
0: Excellent. It's always nice to hear. I mentioned the warmth. We're going through an unnaturally warm British summer over here at the moment. We've had two weeks solid of over 30 degrees, which I know is nothing in Australian terms, but uh, I guess warm climate is something you're adjusted to now.
1: It is. I mean, two weeks of 30 degrees is bad anyway. I don't know if I would particularly find it enjoyable. It is easy to deal with, I think, after a while. But, yeah, I can imagine it being rather insufferable for people in the UK right now.
0: Mm, when you're in a country like Australia, I guess a lot of particularly business premises have aircon built into them because you need it to survive, right?
1: Uh, yes, we do. Uh, most, nearly all businesses and most houses have air conditioning. And uh, unusually for, the, for Australia as well, because it can be cold in winter, um, we actually have reverse air conditionings, which actually heats a house up. It's an alternative to uh, radiators. So things are quite different in the way that they approach heating and cooling here.
0: So they are two very distinctly different climates, England and Australia. When did you first visit Australia and how long was it between then and you realising it was somewhere you wanted to make a living for
1: yourself? Well, the first time I came to Australia was the time when I effectively moved here. And that was in uh, March 2011. I originally came because I'd come to the end of a long period on a job in the UK. And uh, the opportunity came about to use the last year I could of using my working holiday visa to come to Australia. Um, originally, I wasn't um, so keen to work in testing when I came here. I wanted to do a bit of working and travel and, you know, live the backpacker lifestyle. But I had the opportunity to work for a company in Sydney called Avocado Consulting, which um, has a team of testing consultants on client sites. They had a couple of really interesting projects that really appealed to me and um you know i needed the money as well so i thought why not i I'd ha- I'd moved to sydney and i ended up starting that job as contractor and i've been there ever since
0: yeah i've never visited australia and i'd really love to to visit and maybe even even to work over there one day I'm going to be really stereotypical. There's one thing that always puts the fear up me, and it's something that has reinforced me on Twitter as well. I follow the Australian security researcher Troy Hunt, okay. who spends half his time posting security advice and half his time posting pictures of giant spiders that he's found. <laughs> are, are the giant spiders really everywhere?
1: Uh, no, they're not, to be honest. The one that you would get that's fairly common is called A Huntsman. Uh, a huntsman's about the size of – bits more bit smaller than the size of the average hand but they're quite timid creatures and they're not and they're they're poisonous but they're not deadly if they bite you you feel a bit of pain but it goes they sometimes will come into a house but they tend to keep themselves very much to themselves and hidden away so it would take a lot to provoke them they're the only spiders that you would find usually dwelling in the city same with snakes i've only ever seen one snake a brown snake when i was walking in the blue mountains just west of sydney out in a quite rural area. And I've never seen any since. So really, deadly spiders, deadly snakes are not something that most people have to worry about.
0: That is excellent news, (laughs) something I'll take under under advisement. And although the wildlife can sometimes be a little bit hostile, I assume the the process of applying to be a foreign worker in Australia is uh, a lot more straightforward than in the UK right now in Brexit times. Are they very welcoming to uh, outside workers?
1: Well, there are different schemes to do it. The one I benefited from is something called a 457 visa, which is a work and business visa. It's essentially the same as sponsorship. So a company will sponsor you for up to four years. The process took about, I think it took about six weeks. And you have to pay some of money or the company does on your behalf. It's actually a lot harder now because they've tightened the rules regarding the application process. So you have to express an intention or an expression of interest, and then they invite you to apply. There is actually another scheme, which is a permanent migration scheme, which you can apply for without sponsorship. And that has a much more limited set of jobs that that you can apply for or that you can apply with experience from. So it is a bit harder than when I did mine, but it's still doable. Lots of companies sponsor even now.
0: And we'll go on to talk about all things Australia and related to your Test Bash Australia talk. After we hear from the first of the five song selections that you've picked to take with you to the fictional Testers Desert Island.
1: Yeah. The song I picked was The Manic Street Preachers, A Design for Life. It's a song that came about in about 1996. It's one of the great songs of my you know, teenage years, a great Welsh rock band with very working class roots. And uh, one of the things that really interested me about this song is that it is about working class identity and solidarity. I mean, the first line of the song is, Libraries Gave Us Power, which is inspired by legend above an entrance to a civic library in a district of Newport in South Wales. There are lots of ideas about what it means to be working class and what people think of uh, working class identity and you know how to better yourself. Uh, those things kind of appealed to me. They always have done. It's not testing related, I'm afraid, but it's just a very influential song that I love.
0: the manic street preachers with a design for life now paul i mentioned we're approaching the first ever test bash australia and test bash obviously has its own very distinct testing scene and i guess australia's remoteness does give it its own very distinct identity but with it being harder to get there and for people who are there it's more expensive for them to travel elsewhere is its remoteness more a pro or a con do you think
1: I think it's uh, six of one and a half a dozen of the other. I think we have quite a close-knit testing scene. I mean, it's as much about who you know as what you know. Mm -hmm. There are lots of testers who migrate to Australia, particularly at the moment from the Philippines and India and Sri Lanka and quite a few Brits. So we're having quite an influx of new talent, new ideas all the time. The pot gets stirred, if you will. We come up with quite a lot of decent, bright ideas. It's quite a vibrant testing scene, actually. I think uh, the Sydney Testers Group, we do something every month and we get a good turnout. And there are lots of people who are really, really keen to learn. You know, lots of people have been in Sydney for a while, along with new migrants and new people who have been influx from other parts of Australia. And it's quite lively, I would say.
0: And I, I think the remoteness does, does cause Australians and New Zealanders to to put more out there because they, they have to work harder to advertise themselves to the rest of the world. It's noticeable that some of the m- most interesting like testing publications and events are from that part of the world. And I think the first test bash down there is going to be really helpful for that because even if you can't make it to Australia, if you're a paid subscriber to the Ministry of Testing Dojo, then you get access to all the talks from the conference after it. So, yeah, if you can't pay for yourself to get down there, you have a chance to actually hear these voices. And there's a, there's a lot to be said by people down there.
1: Yeah, I think we've got some really good testers here. I mean, there are some who are quite notable in the community. I mean, my co-chair at testers, uh, Sammy Connolly, she's done various uh, talks over in, in Europe. And um, she recently did uh, a talk in uh, India as part of um, Selenium Conf. You know, Anne-Marie Charette, as well, is quite well known. She does numbers. She does various talks in Europe. So we, there are quite a few testers here who have made a good name for themselves internationally.
0: And we're going to be hearing from a few more of those people in upcoming episodes, actually, in the run up to Test Pass Australia. I'm hoping to speak to a few more people who are going to be talking there. Now, I know that stereotypes are generally a bad thing. It's, it's not good to pigeonhole a whole group of people, but mm. Australians tend to have one of the best stereotypes in the world. You know, they're chipper people. They're always up for a, you know, a laugh, a beer, and a, a barbecue. <laughs> is that the impression that you get from having actually spent time living with them?
1: I would say that Australians are generally friendly. Um, I'd say that the life in cities like Sydney is not that similar to London, though. Um, you, you get friendly ones and unfriendly ones. But generally, I I, I, t- I tend to find Australians quite amenable. I mean, I'm not a big barbecue person, or you know, I'm, I'm a, for a start, I'm a vegan, so I wouldn't eat that anyway. But uh, <laughs> but you know, I mean, they're, they're quite. I remember teams that I used to work with used to go out, you know, for drinks all the time. And um, but it's difficult to say to label something as being particularly Australian because I mean, the teams I've worked with have been quite international teams. Software testing in Australia is truly international, so you have a melting pot of lots of different ideas and cultures, and quite a few of the Sprits as well.
0: And just one final question while we're talking geography. New Zealand is basically on the doorstep for you. I always picture that someone in Australia would be nipping back and forth to New Zealand for the weekend if it's that close. Is that something that people do or is, it, is that still like travelling to the continent for Brits?
1: Well, it's not actually that close. It's about three and a half hours away. So uh, the distances are not trivial. But it is the closest you know, foreign country to somebody, say, living in Sydney. I've been to New Zealand a couple of times, um, one of them on holiday with my wife, and the second one to go to the WeTestNZ conference which happens twice a year uh, in Wellington and in Auckland. There's more traffic, I suspect, from New Zealand to AU for Australian conferences. When I was over there, I was told I was one of four people who had come from Australia to New Zealand for that particular conference. And they made a point of mentioning us and, you know, thanking us for coming. Uh, There is a bit of travel back and forth, possibly for work as well. But I suspect it might just be a bit more NZ to AU.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, I, I picture it as just you know a dot on the map on the other side of the world. It's obviously very different when you're, when you're in there. And we're going to drill a bit more into detail, particularly details surrounding your patch talk. In the next section, after we hear about song number two.
1: Well, actually, my, my next song is from one of my favourite uh, musicians, uh, a French singer called Serge Gainsbourg, who was very popular from about the 60s to the 80s. He died in, I think, 1990. This song is called Initials BB. I've loved him for a long time. He's sort of a legend of French music. Uh, and in this particular song, he was roaring over his lost relationship with uh, the great Bridget Bardot, and he sort of has this vision of her while having while being boozed up in a pub in London. Now, both were obviously quite were quite flawed characters in their own way. Like Serge Gainsbourg was a complete alcoholic, and he had some rather dubious sort of views on the t- at the time, and Bridget Bardot. You know, I mean, she ended up becoming a bit racist later on, quite frankly. But um, they came to get, at this time, they were at the peak of their uh, of their brilliance and they wrote some fantastic music. Serge is very much seen as an icon in, in French culture, if you will. But one of the things I liked about picking a French language song, is probably because I speak French myself, and I, I take a lot of time to look at French blogs. French testing blogs, and I think in the test community, as we define it on Twitter, there's still quite a dominance towards Anglophone blogs and Anglophone ideas. If I think if um, some of the spoke more or more skilled in, in other languages, we'd have more diverse ideas in tech.
0: nuit que j'étais Londres, parcourant l'amour Lustreux de Proels devint une vision dans l'eau de Cels. So that was Serge Gainsbourg with Initials BB. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, Paul, that you're talking at Test Australia. Your talk has one of the most intriguing titles I've heard so far. We'll get into the sleepwalking side of things. But where did the idea of the talk first come from?
1: The idea of the talk came from um, three things that came together. First of all, it was from watching the film Hypernormalization. Uh, which is uh, mentioned in the blog article that companies the talk but uh, the talk was based on and uh, and the second one was being involved in a particular project where there were quite a lot of defects that came out of the woodwork towards the end, and we couldn 't really explain them because they were not the things we were expecting we We seemed to have a very different idea of quality and what was expected from what the clients or, or the business wanted and um, It puzzled me and it puzzled my manager, and we weren 't quite sure what was going on. Uh, we eventually rectified the problem. It took a while to do it as things as these things happen, And there were also various other aspects of politics involved with the project. But it made me think that some of the things that we see in the grand scale also affect small teams. You know, you just have the same types of politics in the grand scale, the same types of um, national levels and in politics as you do at the kind of disagreements and the kind of confusions and uh, – I wouldn't say delusions, but obfuscation of the truth that you happen at, that happen at project teams as well, especially when you're reporting to management. And this got me thinking about reconciling these different strands that were, uh, that were mentioned in hyper normalization, particularly the work of Alexei Yurchak and the end of the Soviet Union. And also, I was reading Baudrillard, um, John Baudrillard, a French uh, postmodern philosopher, at about the same time he was talking about simulation simulacra something that was also a basis for hypernormalization. normalization and i just sort of it, they just came to me in an idea and i put my my thoughts down on paper and the blog developed from that
0: it's worth mentioning that certainly if you're in the uk the film Hypernormalization by adam curtis is currently available on iplayer and it's been on there for a year or so i think it's, it's it was partly funded by the bbc so it's it's kind of one of their originals it's available there i don't know how it is in other territories but It's worth looking out for. It's a long film. I watched it myself last night (laughs) to explain where we are for future generations when we're recording. This is the day after England have miraculously won the World Cup court final match and have progressed to the semi-finals. And there's a a massive, massive national wave of surprise and patriotism. And I went straight from that into watching one of the the bleakest cinematic experiences I've ever seen. It's a film which doesn't shy away from showing... The realities of the world, um, some truly horrific footage of uh, events, bombings, that sort of thing. Uh, but it, it puts it together in a way that, uh, yeah, that explains the concept of, of hyperreality. And it's it's an engrossing watch, but it's one that I would caveat with a bunch of warnings of, of make sure you're in a, a state of mind where you don't mind seeing these sort of things because it, it doesn't shy away from them.
1: Yeah, it's not the kind of uh, documentary that makes you happy. It's not uplifting. It's very revealing. And I think some bits of it have to be taken with a pinch of salt. It, it does verge a bit on conspiracy theory at times, but it is extremely well-researched and it is very beautiful to watch. And it is very thought-provoking.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's ironic in a way that it spends a lot of time talking about how governments are you know, shaping facts to fit their own message, and yet that's kind of what the film does as well. It, it kind of presents a, a view of reality, as the truth and and ironically that's kind of what the the film is also rallying against is the fact
1: that it is yeah. and i think it's actually deliberate i think the idea is he wants to spin a narrative and he even says it himself in interviews as adam curtis mm-hmm. lots of his documentaries are quite similar a previous one called a bitter lake which is about events in the middle east that lead up to the iraq war it's, it spins a narrative brings different threads together and you have to take or leave aspects of it but I, i'd say it gets more right than it gets wrong
0: yeah it's it's a it's a movie that's going to stay with me for, for some time obviously i also do a, a movie podcast on the side screen testing and and although our schedules are kind of backed up at the moment it's something that i can Im- imagine us talking about in quite a lot of detail on that podcast one day and we'll talk a bit more about that hyper reality within software development in the next section after we hear your third song choice paul
1: my third song choice is a, a choice by a, an australian new age band that was popular in the 80s called uh, Ice House. And I don't think they were a particularly great band, but they had one really amazing song called Great Southern Land. And it's a great 80s rock song. It evokes the country, Australia, and its climate, its great age, its natural variance, its countryside, its the differences of its climate. And there's a myth associated with Australia as well as being, you know, this land that's alive in itself that's, that is essentially ancient, arid in the middle, you know, surrounded by an endless ocean, which is one of the lyrics it uses. It kind of um, defines the myth of Australia as this amazing, huge landmass. You know, a country in itself. It's just it's about the size of the continental United States, but most of it is empty and and arid and dry. And there's only what 23 million people in Australia, dotted in cities around the coast. And um, for that reason, Australia has always had a myth associated with it and a unique history. And I think this this song gets it right.
0: was ice house with great southern land and we're talking before about the idea of hyper reality and how teams can sort of seem to be sleepwalking through problems and how they how they don't see problems when they're in the middle of them or how they just take the current situation as unchangeable and as fact without getting into too much detail i'm kind of in one of those right now where i'm on uh, you know those projects that are kind of death march projects where (laughs) it's basically one of those except we knew it was death march project before we started it and the team raised objections about how the, particularly the, the timescales are very tight, and we were told, yeah, we know, we just got to do it. And it, it's like, it's how can you simultaneously know that this isn't right and yet also still do it?
1: So it's essentially become a fait accompli. You know, you do it because you have to do it because some boss has told you that's the way it is.
0: Pretty much. I mean, we can see the business objectives behind it. And I mean, it's one of these fixed deadline projects where someone somewhere has a reason why this needs to be a fixed deadline. I'm yet to see what the reason is, but we'll see.
1: that is unfortunate i've been in projects which are a bit similar to that in terms of death marches much earlier in my career but at the start of my career really and they're not pleasant they really are not pleasant
0: the trouble is that when a team's vision does get detached from reality when you're right in the middle of it it's often hard to see that that's the problem how can we as testers help to stop a team from from getting too much into that cycle
1: Well, I think we as testers, I mean, we have a unique position that we can uh, see throughout the development lifecycle. And we may be the first people to realize this because we're dealing with quality all the time, you know, as a primary focus of our work. Uh, So I think we are in a unique position. Then again, we get trapped in it as well. I mean, things like over reliance on metrics and, you know, we we can also be confused as to what the require you know what quality is and whether it really uh, whether our version of quality is really what the customer wants you know some, uh, so it sometimes can be very hard for us too because we're in that team we're in the same team and we sometimes work from similar assumptions but the best ways to do it I think is to do things that always challenge your assumptions and challenge the assumptions of the team so ideas that well, it's certainly things that we did in previous jobs that I quite like was inviting people from outside and in other projects into your me- into your main Scrum meetings. People with a very different perspective, having people from a diverse range of backgrounds and different types of projects, not having teams together for too long. You know, mixing up different teams so that people don't get locked into certain mindsets. Trying to mix up the metrics that you use so they can provide different results, and trying to be as close to the user. And the user may not necessarily be a client, you know, the user may be the person behind the client. Also, I would watch out for phrases that show uh, groupthink or show a kind of resignation towards sleepwalking, things like it's better than nothing, or it it will do, or we haven't got time to change it, or that's the way it is, you know, that sort of thing.
0: And I think that we as testers are well-placed to be able to highlight those problems when we see them. The trouble is that sometimes within an organization, there can be reasons why it's difficult to speak up and whether they are intimidation or you have, you know, the, the fear of talking to management mm. that, you know, you're going to be, you know, blacklisted for saying something that you shouldn't have. And we see this in really weird places sometimes. I remember there was a, a plane crash a few years back where basically the plane ran out of fuel and both yeah. both the co-pilots had spotted this and basically they were just, they were afraid to speak to the captain. I it was Certainly, it was a country where the, the cultural bias was, was you don't speak up to those above you. They, they, are, they are always correct. And they were like, they, they noticed this, but they didn't want to highlight the pilot's error.
1: So I think I've heard something quite similar, actually. Is it a Korean air flight? I think it might be. I think it was, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the pilot had come from outside. He was an ex-military captain. And he had quite a lot of experience flying military planes, but not so many uh, flying civilian aircraft. And he made some error, but because he was of an elevated status, and because of norms regarding speaking to senior staff, the uh, his co-pilots didn't challenge him.
0: Now, thankfully, obviously, in testing, normally we don't have lives on the line, but I mean, situations like that yeah. do emerge with, within within testing. And a lot of people do identify themselves as introverts, and I, I'm someone who does as well. You know, if if I'm in a meeting, the, the one thing I'm looking forward to more than anything else is the meeting ending. <laughs> but yeah, how much do we, how much do you think we have almost a duty of care as testers to you know, like the co-pilots, to say actually, I know this is hard to say, but I need to say this.
1: Well, I think it depends on the team. If you have a team where um, you have a, a very dominant manager. Or a very dominant PM, or somebody, or head of development, or even just very strong personalities, and you're the, the quiet one. I think that is extremely difficult to overcome. Because often in meetings you'll get shouted down, and I've been shouted down at times. And I think it's and sometimes the uh, there is a a rather needless and it shouldn't exist personally rivalry between testers and developers that sometimes ends up with testers being shouted down at. And it is very difficult to get around, but there are things I've seen that could solve that problem. You know, things like being able to, like having an anonymous tips box or something like that, where you can you can add suggestions anonymously, or even good meeting etiquette. Things like every person has x amount of minutes to speak, and they can't be challenged. They can't until afterwards. You know, every person has the right to say their bit you know the, the, like the scrum meeting where it goes around a room and then one person starts the other person starts and they cannot be interrupted
0: yeah and that's one of the things that i've noticed when i've just moved into my new team as well is that i've gone from a team that has very mature agile practices and a team that's used to working together to a team that hasn't been doing that and having to reintroduce ideas like you no know, in a retrospective everyone gets to speak up it's an open floor there's no judgment uh, it's you know that we're here to improve the team and In some ways, it's frustrating to be in in that new situation again, but also it's immensely rewarding because this team is discovering, actually, no, there is a a better way of working or or a more conducive way of producing good software. And uh, we're actually having some quite good advances there. So, you know, we're making, making good from bad, I guess. Yeah. And that leads us into the fourth song that you've picked for us today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Neil. Uh, the song I picked was uh, "Money" by Pink Floyd from their album *Dark Side of the Moon*. I um, it's just one of my favourite songs. Um, it just has an amazing riff, uh, great vocals, a seven-four time signature, based on ideas about money and avarice, and the sort of mixture between uh, you know the decisions between what you want in terms of personal material success and uh, the beliefs that you have and the effect it has on your personality and you know and increase of greed and things like that. It's it's just uh, an amazing song and it's from an amazing album. Uh it fits in seamlessly into possibly one of the greatest albums of all time.
0: that was Pink Floyd with money. And we were talking a bit before about how you can spot when a team is becoming detached from reality. And one of those things is to spot when there are particular buzzwords being used or abstractions being used, terms that are poorly defined that are being used to represent something. And one of those testing obviously is the word quality. People will talk about, you know, have we achieved good quality? You know, is is this going to be a good quality release? How can we help our teams to to stop from just using from banding words about that they don't really know what they mean?
1: Well, I think the problem is that even in software testing, we don't know what they mean. Nobody's come up with a decent definition that works. I took um, inspiration and I quoted references from an article by Gerald Weinberg called Agile and the Definition of Quality. And he starts off talking about Crosby's definition, which comes from I think, the production line, the idea of quality is meeting requirements. And there are you know, there are lots of companies that would work uh, just by writing a list of requirements and ticking them off the list. And once you've ticked all the requirements off, that's it you release. It, it's the quality is expected to be achieved. But that is, you know, rather flawed and has many gaps in it. There are also ideas about qualities meeting some person's requirements or qualities valued to some person or some person that matters. But even in the article, Jerry Weinberg states that that in itself is a political decision and sometimes an irrational decision and sometimes a decision that's hidden from view. Uh, Who is defining quality? Does that person really reflect the needs of the customer? I'll give you an example. I used to do a lot of testing for business-to-business. You know, we, we sell a product to other businesses and the users are abstracted quite far down the line. So we would face with, say, a procurement manager who would give us requirements. Uh, or maybe a, a like a cio or something like or a, a manager of a a finance or modeling team that sort of thing now that person is quite highly abstracted up the line so he's receiving his requirements from lower down say three or four steps down the line to the people who use the software but the thing is though the procurement manager might be the person who signs off the product is your is quality defined by the procurement manager is it defined by the um, the users quite far down the line and have decisions that have been taken in the meantime been rational decisions based on what the company wants? or Have they been influenced by salespeople? Are they wish lists defined by managers themselves? Is it These sorts of ideas, and it's difficult to put a pin on them. I think part of the reason why projects go wrong is because uh, we think we understand what people want, but we really do not. And the people we're asking may, may not be the people who understand it well themselves.
0: Mm, that's given me nightmare flashbacks of a project that I was on a while ago. It was a contract where we spent a lot of time, yeah, thrashing out requirements, agreeing, you know, who our users were, which browsers we were going to support. We basically, we got to the end of the project, and this then secret requirement emerged where actually we needed to be able to demo this in the boardroom of this company, and this boardroom had a locked down network where the only browser they had was Internet Explorer six. <laughs> now, this was a few years ago, so IE six wasn't as quite as scarily old as it is now. But, you know, this would have been around IE8, IE9 time. And, you know, reworking a project that uses, you know, a JavaScript framework to be demoable on machines using Internet Explorer 6 was just, just nigh on impossible. And we, we had to spend actually an amount of time just supporting IE6 for this one person because it was deemed to be important.
1: See, that's that's utterly incredible, I have to say. <laughs> I've seen a lot in this industry. I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I think there's also an idea of even if you're selling directly to, you know, the customers who use the product. Um let's say you're selling an online app or you know, a web app or you know something from mobile phones. Do you really have a good idea of what your customer base is and how have you defined that? Are you making assumptions as to what your customer base is? Are you getting you know, focus groups in and speaking to them about what they want? Or are you just sort of imagining what you think the customer would like? Or are you just looking at other products and saying, we want to have something that's exactly like them? If you look at Microsoft Word, there are so many functions in Microsoft Word that people do not use. But we put them all in there because we want to, to say we've put new features in. But to, if you removed half of them, I don't think it would affect 90% of people who use the product. So what they appreciate about the product isn't a whole gamut of lots and lots of features. It's about doing a certain job well that they need.
0: Yeah, a lot to think about there, Paul. Thank you very much for talking to us today about your upcoming talk at Test Bash Australia. That's on October the nineteenth. There's going to be a, a lot to hear about. There, are you looking forward to it?
1: I am actually. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I've heard so. Many, I've never been to a Test Bash, but I've heard so many good things about it. And um, I was quite surprised and quite honoured to be invited, especially for a talk like this, which is, um, you know, quite different to. Uh, I imagine what a lot of submissions it might have had. It's uh, quite a speculative and quite a different sort of talk so but i'm you know i'm really looking forward to it
0: well it's made for quite a different episode as well we've got quite a lot into deep, deep talks about philosophy and yeah discussions about politics i think it's gonna make for a very interesting talk and uh, i'm looking forward to catching up with that on the dojo i'm sadly not going to be able to make it down to australia purely for monetary reasons i will get there one day i promise it's a, it's a life goal for me to get down there so
1: uh, sometime i look forward to meeting you when you do
0: and we've got one final piece of business on the song front, the final song choice that you've got to take to the island with you.
1: Okay, well, the final song choice I've taken to the island is a song called My Name is Trouble, and it's made by a folk musician, an Israeli-Dutch-French folk musician called Karen Ann, And she's been under the radar for quite a while, although a bit more notable in the blue scene. But she comes out with amazing songs. And one of the things I really liked about this is uh, the title, My Name is Trouble. I remember my first ever uh, job when I became a software tester and I moved in from a different role within the company to be a software tester. I would create this you know, list of defects and I'd go and talk about it to you know, the dev lead at the time. And he'd say, oh, here's Trouble again. <laughs> and I, I thought, well, you know, I'm actually trying to help. It's quite funny, I suppose. But um, he used to say, oh, you know, here's Trouble. And I thought there is something to be said there about the relationship that developers and testers have, you know, that some people do see us as being, you know, a pain sometimes. And um, it, it kind of stuck with me. And I thought, what a great inclusion as a song. It's an amazing song, actually.
0: That was Karen Ann with My Name is Trouble, Paul's final song selection for the desert island. And the one other thing you could take with you, Paul, is one book to to accompany you on the island. What book is it that you would take with you?
1: Well, the book I would take with me is a book I'm currently reading at the moment. It's called The Agile Samurai. And it's a book by an author called Jonathan Rasmussen. And it's really about the agile process, and it's just such a great and interesting read. And it explains things very well, Uh, lots and lots of great examples, you know, seeing the big picture and how to negotiate and work with other people, um, the kind of troubles that we have that keep us up at night. I think it's just a great book. Hmm. And, but I've, never, I've not seen that many people talk about it, and, or Jonathan Rasmussen mentioned as a name a lot of the time in the testing community. But I think there's something really that they can get out of this, that we testers can get out of this particular book. I think it's just excellent.
0: In what way does he relate the activity of a samurai to, to working in Agile?
1: He makes references to it in places like he has, um, um, he has little samurai characters with um, little quotes, things like, hold on, you're making this sound way too easy. What if it's a fixed bid contract and everything has to be done or we are all going to die? These little little quips that make it quite amusing. And so it, it defines things as like um, what it takes to be a master sensei, uh, the legendary agile master experience and wise and all forms of agile software delivery.
0: Excellent. Well, we're 18 episodes in now, and the Tester's Island bookshelf, I think, has more fiction than testing books on it. So it's always nice to get something in there that's going to be helpful if we want to continue our testing work on the island. That list of books is available on goodreads.com. There's a link in the show notes if you want to go and see what all the books were that were selected by previous guests. And we have a Spotify playlist with everyone's song selections, uh, should you wish to listen to them. Which brings us to wrap-up time. It's been wonderful talking to you, Paul. Thank you for taking time out of your evening. Uh, my morning to talk across across the globe with me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, honestly.
0: And if people want to get in touch with you, I mentioned uh, you're involved in the Sydney Testers Meetup. How often, I was going to ask where they meet, but I'm guessing that's Sydney. <laughs> how how often do you meet up?
1: Well, we do meet in Sydney, that's definitely true. Um, we uh, we meet about once a month. When we do events one or two times a month. We usually have one speaker event a month and then we have panel events. Uh, we also have a, a Twitter account. At Sydney testers that people can follow us, and also representation on LinkedIn, where we're doing we're starting to do a process of doing more resources for the LinkedIn group, more webinars, that kind of thing, which will be coming and those, those that will be continuing as time goes on. And if you go to Sydney testers official on YouTube, you can see a few of our previous talks on video that recorded.
0: Obviously, you've got test bash coming up very shortly. Is there anything else that you've got coming up this year that you wanted to talk about?
1: Well, the, I'm speaking at one other event this year, and that's uh, an event called Agile Testing Days, which is um, in, going, to, going to be in Sydney at the end of August, and that will be on a different talk topic. Apart from that, I mean, I've got, uh, as you know, I'm doing a, a new series of streams on Twitch and recording them up to YouTube for various uh, software test automation learnings and um, demos, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, those Twitch streams are really intriguing to me. I've always liked the idea of sort of doing live testing or live exploration or, or you know, live live learning almost. And it's an idea that I'm not saying I'm going to steal in the future, but I, I might take inspiration for it to do something very similar because just the idea of it sounds brilliant.
1: Well, I don't know if um, it's really working on Twitch uh, because I don't get a lot of views on Twitch, to be honest. Programming is not a big area. Uh, It tends to be more about gaming. There is a a small and quite vibrant programming niche on Twitch that tends to be more about game programming. But it's really about a medium which I can, you know, demonstrate ideas, stream, record, and then post on YouTube, post on Twitch afterwards, and then refer people to them, uh, to those recordings. The, The first ones that I did were on Postman, I posted those on Twitter and they got you know retweeted by the Postman team and uh, people like Danny Dayton. And so, they, you know, I thought that they were quite interesting and they seemed to get a nice, a nice reaction. If you're going to le- spend time learning something and you're confident with uh, doing something, uh, with the, being able to speak in a live stream, it's just a no-brainer, really. I just, it's just a great thing to do and it doesn't take a lot of effort.
0: Those will be linked in the show notes along with everything else we talked about today. If people want to get hold of you, outside the episode and to talk to you about uh, your upcoming talk or uh, being involved in the city testers meetup where's the best place for them to do that
1: well i'm on twitter at, at testing rants um that's my twitter handle you can also send me an email if you like at paul at gmail.com
0: lovely stuff and as for us if you want to get hold of us we're at testers island And if you've not had enough of me talking, I'm actually guest appearing on someone else's podcast this week. The recently launched episode two of The Guilty Tester podcast, which is kind of a confession series. It's people talking about times they've had to compromise on what their testing beliefs are. Uh, So I have a talk about bug reporting and when my beliefs around that have been challenged. You can find them on Twitter at The Guilty Tester, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But for you, Paul, uh, thank you very much for taking time today and for overcoming technical hurdles, geographic hurdles, me not being able to work out time zones.
1: (laughs) Uh, We've all been there, I think. (laughs) No, honestly, it's been a real pleasure and I've loved it. I really have.
0: Brilliant. And we'll be back again next week with a new episode. Uh, It's lovely talking to you and uh, we'll speak to you all again soon. See you soon. Bye.
1: See you. Bye.
0: Tester's Island Discs is brought to you in association with the Ministry of Testing, written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Tony Lovitch. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island.